Three, two, one, go. Today's reading is from Luke 4, um, 21 to 30. He began. began by saying to them, Today this script is fulfilled. Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke. All spoke well of him and were amazed that at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Position, heal yourself, and you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet. Yet none of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built, in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. All right, thank you very much, Hannah, for that wonderful reading. It's, uh, is it, you know, it's actually nice to hear the scripture and have it s- slowed down a bit, right? So that we uh, have the time to uh, listen to it. This is, um, this is actually a, a follow-on passage from uh, our passage last week, and it's the, it's the fifth week in Epiphany, which means it's four weeks after Epiphany. So this is the fifth uh, sermon in this series. Um, here's, here's a quotation. Let me, you can tell me if you know where it's from. It's, it's gigantic stature and the deformity of its aspect, more, more hideous than belongs in humanity, instantly informed that it was the wretch, that the filthy demon to, who, to whom I had given life. Hands up if you know where that quotation is from. It's the perfect one to start a Sunday morning sermon off, right? Just nailed it. So uh, the novel Frankenstein is about the making of a creature from the parts of human bodies in which, or, or, and then life is granted to it through the scientific process known, known as galvanism using electricity. It was written by Mary Shelley, and it's considered an early example of science fiction. Now, I love reading books, and I love watching films like Frankenstein. Uh, It really captures my imagination, and I love 
you know, the gothicness and the creativity of it all. Uh, romantic comedies, not so much. That's not my bag. And why? Well, I feel that they're uh, rather predictable, um, sometimes quirky, sometimes rather silly. And, uh, but, but the women in my house love them and they enjoy them. And, uh, but maybe I also struggle with them because I feel that they sometimes give a false view of love. Um, and I feel that sometimes my, my romanticness or lack thereof is somehow compared with this, uh, you know, the Casanova who happens to be on the screen. And so I'm, I'm fine if you watch a romantic comedy, just watch it in our second TV, watch it in the basement, far away from me, and I'll stay upstairs and watch a bit of Frankenstein. That's okay with me. Now, I think that sometimes people can approach their faith um, like love in a romantic comedy. I think uh, that we think it's okay or even maybe to be sought for, for us to stay in that first flush of faith that we experience at the start of our walk with the Lord, rather than growing into a more mature, more steady faith. And I think that if we do this, if we stay in that first flush, then we're suffering from something that theologians call Notting Hill-itis. Actually, no, I made that up myself, but uh, I think it's a thing, and those who laugh know exactly what I'm, yeah. And, and that film has one of the best portrayals of a Welsh person ever. So, uh, yeah, S- Spike is my hero. Uh, anyway, l- last week in our, in our series um, uh, called A Light for All Nations, I encouraged us, if you remember, to view life or to view ourselves kind of like Hulk would um, as what? Puny humans, right? As puny humans, and to allow Jesus to be the quote-unquote superhero in our lives. Now, now we left Jesus in Nazareth, uh, which is his hometown, um, and Luke 4 really shows us Jesus's inaugural sermon, where he openly lets people in on this secret that's no longer a secret, that he's claiming to be the Messiah, right? And folks at the start, where we left the sermon last week, is that people at the start of the message are impressed. It says uh, that all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. And this and, and this positive response to Jesus' claims, we might call the first flush of faith. Maybe we don't know a lot about Jesus, who he is, but we love what we're hearing. Uh, maybe we've heard the gospel f- for the first time. Maybe um, a scripture has jumped off the page for the first time in our lives, and God has used it to bring faith alive in our hearts. This is the first flush. And so the people hear Jesus, and they are amazed. They all spoke well of him. They're nudging each other in the pews. They are absolutely captivated by what they're hearing. And this really is every preacher's dream, to read the scripture, just like Jesus did, and then to say one sentence, and then everyone in the pews is like, wow, that is some good words there, pastor. You nailed it. Right, we are amazed. I would love that to happen, but and that's actually what happened here in the synagogue, the first flush. It's a bit like being uh, on your first ever date with someone. 
you know, you're starry-eyed and you're just amazed at the feelings that you're feeling inside. Maybe feelings that you've never felt before. And your heart is beating faster. And everything that the other person has to say is just amazing. It's profound. It's funny. It's witty. Uh, There's a connection there. And it's really intense. Now, you acknowledge that you don't know that much about the other person, but if first impressions are anything to go by, then you are onto a winner here, and you know it. Okay, but then the first date leads to a second date, to a third date, to you know the first month and the second month and the third month. And of course, you're getting to know the other person much, much better. You're becoming more familiar with them. And in our Luke passage today, we see this transition from first flush into uh, greater familiarity. This is where we see it. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked Luke 4 verse 22. Hold on a sec. This guy who's speaking in the synagogue to us, isn't that Joseph's son? This first flush of amazement is being replaced by a familiarity. I, I don't know. I'm F's. I'm struggling with F's this morning. And it's, uh, what do you call it? Every, every uh, point is an F. So you're going to have to bear with me. Familiarity. Uh, and when it comes to faith, this is where we start to really to know Jesus more. We're making all of the connections. We say things like, okay, so Jesus, who's the human, is also the Son of God. And The one in the New Testament is the same as the one in the Old Testament. And Jesus, who is one person, is also a member of a trinity. You know, we start to make all of the connections. And you, you know, and in this, in this, in this, in this stage, your, your uh, brain is trying to put all of the connections to make all of the links, all of the pieces in the right place. And the joy of the familiarity stage is that your understanding of Jesus is both broadening and getting more and more deep. So you love cross-referencing scripture. You are underlining things in the Bible. You are making notes. You are using a highlighter. And this is all brilliant. This is all how it should be. But if we're not careful, then sometimes during this stage, uh, during this kind of natural sorting process that happens during the familiarity stage, um, it can cause us to latch onto parts of Jesus that we like and to kind of leave aside those parts of Jesus that we're not such a big fan of, that we don't like. And in our passage this morning, it was when the people in the synagogue realized that Jesus was Joseph's son, that suddenly the temperature in the room started to change. In Matthew 13, uh, which is one of the, of the, of the synoptic um, versions of this passage, Matthew goes even further to highlight this rising negativity that happens in the familiarity stage. It says, where did this man get this wisdom And these miraculous powers, they ask, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. It's like when you um, first hear your date fart. Or they pick their nose in your presence for the first time. Or they have a habit that's rather annoying that you weren't aware of 
at the start, and you struggle to mesh this first flush feeling that you had at the beginning um, with this reality that you are now encountering. Or maybe you meet their parents, and your brain and your heart has to make room for a more complicated picture in which your date is just one person uh, in a larger family. And that's why I'm using this eyebrow-raised look here, because it's this sense of that this, this Messiah can't be the person that we grew up with. And, this, and so this familiarization period of faith is a sifting process. We keep what we like, and we throw away what we don't like. And we might not even be aware of it. And so you can see that in the familiarization, in the familiarity stage, one of the issues, one of the risks, is that we might be throwing out or discarding key parts of the faith, and we don't even realize it. But in that stage, it doesn't really matter, right? Because what we, we like what we have, and it's working for us. And then, it, but if left unchecked, then those incorrect things that we absorb in the familiarity stage can solidify into this thing called folk religion. And folk religion is where, where, where the familiarity of this Jesus that we've created becomes solidified, maybe codified in our lives. Now, let me be clear. This this isn't, this isn't the Jesus of the Bible. This is the Jesus that we've created to meet our expectations and our needs. He, he may look like the Jesus of the Bible, and he may be 70% Jesus of the Bible, but there, are, but there are parts that we've absorbed and parts that we've left on the side that do not line up with what we read in the Scripture. And once our folk religion is established, we imagine in our minds, that this here, where I live, this here is orthodox faith. This here is, is, is truth. And we assume that everyone around thinks the same that we think. And when they don't, we become suspicious. And we judge them according to our folk religion. And then, and, and then we allow um, our sloppy thinking that started in the familiarization stage to actually become of the now unexamined background of our faith. Or to say it in other words, once you're established in your folk religion, it's hard to be objective enough to re-examine it. And so when we hear someone say things like, my Jesus would never do that, or the Jesus I worship would never say that, I wonder if what we're seeing is maybe folk religion. Roger Olson actually talks about this extensively um, in his book, Questions to All Your Answers. So if you want to find more about this idea of folk religion, then please re read that book. But, but in summary, what folk religion is, or folk religion happens when we, when we allow an imagined or an incomplete or, an ev or even an incorrect version of Jesus to actually end up being the Jesus that we worship, the Jesus that we love, and the Jesus that we, we pray to. I think it was maybe Jefferson as the president who cut out parts of the Bible that he didn't like. And we can do the same, right? When we create our folk religion. 
And so what happens if the Jesus that you are praying to is nothing more than an imagined idol of made-up bits and pieces of the real Jesus in the Bible mixed in with a bunch of other stuff? A Frankenstein's monster of faith. A A Franken Jesus. A Franken Savior. Now in Nazareth, we see the people in the synagogue move quickly from this first flush of faith into familiarity, into folk religion. Uh, you, know, you know, they start by saying, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. And then, isn't this Joseph's son? And now to folk religion, where Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this, this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did over in Capernaum. Now, Scripture tells us that the man Jesus could tell what was going on in people's hearts. Jesus, the man, could read people's minds. And here, Jesus exposes their unspoken assumptions. See, see this saying, proverb, uh, this, this, this saying, this proverb, physician, heal yourself, refers to this expectation that Jesus would do in his hometown to his own family and friends what he's already done elsewhere, right? You know, you should do, or you will do, here in your hometown, what we have heard that you did over in Capernaum. So what we're seeing here is an assumption being exposed that Jesus loves his own people the best. If, if Jesus did all this stuff, you know, over in Capernaum, then for sure he will do the same or even more right here in Nazareth, right? What self-respecting rabbi would not prioritize his own flesh and blood, his kith and kin, his sisters and his brothers, his classmates from when he was a kid? If, if you're a rabbi, Jesus, and if you're the Messiah, then we expect that. We have this assumption. It's the same sort of thinking that we see when someone wins the lottery and suddenly family members assume that a chunk of the winnings will be heading their way. Also, hadn't Jesus just said in verse number 21 that the, mess- that the messianic prophecy was fulfilled in their midst? You know, and so they say to each other in the synagogue, well, he didn't say that over in Capernaum, did he? He said that here, we are the special ones. We are the chosen ones. And Jesus starts to see this folk religion start to grow and to blossom in their minds. What they thought or what they suspected that they knew of Jesus is now being cemented in their hearts as the truth. And friends, like I said, once these untruths or incomplete ideas are locked in our hearts or minds, it's really hard to get rid of them. In fact, the only way that we can have this wrong thinking uprooted in our minds is to allow Jesus through Scripture to exterminate it himself, like vermin. Friends, any wrong or lazy or incomplete thinking that we allow into our understanding of God can be as dangerous as any heresy or any cult. In fact, it can be more more dangerous because we don't realize it's there. These, these uh, wrong thinkings are usually insidious, and they're sly, and they operate on the level of our assumptions and our sub- subconscious. We don't even realize 
that we've made these assumptions. And that's why we have to keep going back to Scripture to challenge and to deconstruct our wrong thinking. Because anything that we're placing our trust in that is not the Jesus of the Bible, understood in his historical context, is not the real Jesus. It's a Frankenstein's Jesus. It's a mishmash. It's a folk religion. And so in our passage, Jesus sets about dismantling their folk religion, this idol that they have created of him. And he does it by using scripture. He says, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. And this makes sense. If I knew you as a snotty-nosed child, then I might be less inclined to be wowed at your prophet status. Now, we all know American Idol and Canadian Idol. Well, the first, of course, was Pop Idol from the UK. And uh, at that time, no one had done anything like this. Um, So in the UK, we were engrossed at this new type of reality TV. And the winner of the first season was this guy called Will Young. This is back in 2001. That's like 21 years ago. But the runner-up, the second place, was a guy known as, as Gareth Gates. Here he is. And as you can see, he was every teenage girl's dream. But for me, this guy Gareth was a guy I went to stuttering school with a year earlier. He was the guy I sat, sat across from as we were both struggling to say the most basic words to each other. You know, to the rest of the world, and, you know, to me, he was Gareth Gates, the pop phenom- phenomenon, and, uh, you know, heartthrob extraordinaire. He was that. But for me, he was Gareth the stutterer. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. And then Jesus goes on. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elisha's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Jesus, through scripture, is starting to dismantle the folk religion of the people of Nazareth. He's saying to them, you think that as the Messiah, I'm going to give preferential treatment to you because you know me? That's not how God works. You know, that that moment when there was that famine, that drought for three and a half years, who did God send Elijah to? Was it a Jew? No, it was a Sidonian. And when there was that leprosy epidemic during Elisha's time, did he heal a Jew in the Jordan? No, he he healed a filthy Syrian. And so Jesus is saying here that the pattern in the Old Testament is that God's prophet goes to wherever he's welcomed and wanted. And those who want the, the word of God and the benefits of the prophet, they are the ones who get to see and to experience what God is doing in their midst. Whether they're Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. And so, you know, can you imagine there in the synagogue, after hearing how, 
how the sermon started. Now they're hearing this. They assumed that they were the special recipients of God's special ministry through Jesus, that they are the insiders, that they are God's favorite. And then Jesus says, actually, just like God's prophet who went to the poor Sidonian and the leprous Syrian, I have come for the world. I haven't just come for you. You are not the center of my universe. You aren't, you aren't even my favorite. Sure, you are a favorite, you know, and I do love you, but you aren't my favorite. I've come for everyone. Everyone is special, not just you. And if you can't handle that, Jesus says, I'm moving on, which is rather brutal, right? And it's rather ironic because that's exactly what happens. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, they drove him out of the town, and they took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. Interesting, right? That, that God's people, the Jews, take Jesus to a hill because they want to kill him. I, I wonder if this is a foresight into what will happen later. You see, when your folk religion is challenged, it can lead to frustration and it can eventually lead to fury. You see, when, when your Frankenstein's Jesus, when your Franken-Jesus doesn't match up with the Jesus of the Bible, you experience what's known as cognitive dissonance, which simply means that you're trying to hold two truths in your mind that are, are, that are contradictory, that don't match up. Now, I used to, so here's an example of this. I used to unthinkingly believe in the phrase, unthinkingly, God is in control. And it, and it brought me real comfort because when I was going through hard times, I was able to say, it's okay because God is in control. Meaning God absolutely deterministically causes everything that takes place on earth. Now, I might not have worded it like that in that time, but if I was pushed, I would have said, yes, that's what I agree. But when I was serving God for two years on the Logos 2, on the missionary ship, my simplistic understanding of God being in control was really challenged. I met this teen who was homeless, who was wrapped in a filthy rag, who um, had his intestines poking out through his stomach wall so that you could see it. I met this little girl who was born in prison in El Salvador and had lived there for her whole life. And my simplistic statement of God is in control was challenged. And maybe something awful has, has happened in your life and, you, and you, you try to match up your experience with this God who is in control. And it leads you to a crisis of faith. And when this happens, you have a choice. You can either keep on trying to force your experience into the mold of God is in control, which can lead to this cognitive dissonance, or you can bring this idea of God is in control and lay it alongside Scripture, and you can review it as you read Scripture. And so you can ask things like, okay, if this is true, then in what way is God in control? And should this mean that he's absolutely deterministically in control of everything? What about free will? What things can we see in Scripture that actually seem to happen outside of God's will? 
What other players are there in this universe other than God and his will? What about Satan and his minions? What about people who are actively working against God and his purposes? And so you start to revisit this phrase that you simplistically understood, God is in control. You know, I'm meeting and I'm reading about people who are deconstructing their faith. You know, it's a bit of a buzzword at the moment. And in some cases, um, when, they, when they deconstruct their faith, it means that they're leaving their faith forever. But in some cases, it means that they revisit and review what they thought they knew about God. And this morning, I want to say to each of us that we should all be regularly deconstructing our faith, especially if the faith that we profess is a folk religion and unexamined faith. A faith that started out with the first flush that then grew into familiarity. And then, if we're honest, we've kind of picked and chosen who our Jesus is, which has then been solidified and codified into this folk religion that we actually find out that we're worshipping a, a Franken-Jesus, a Frankenstein's monster of a savior. Because if we don't keep coming back to Scripture and using it as a plumb line to keep our faith straight and true, then the dissonance that we feel as we're holding contradictory beliefs in our mind will grow and grow and grow until it explodes in something like fury, in something like anger. And so these folks in Nazareth, when faced with the God as revealed in their own scripture, could not handle it. And so they retreated back into their folk religion and they used it as a pretext to, 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 to murder Jesus or, or, or to attempt to. They actually preferred their Frankenstein's God to the God of the Bible. And then they weaponized their idol of God to try to kill the actual son of God. And later, they would succeed. Which then leads to one of the saddest verses in the Bible, in my humble opinion. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. There... Um, first flush of faith that then grew into the contempt of familiarity, which hardened into folk religion, which led to self-righteous fury, ultimately resulted in Jesus saying farewell. He left them for the people who would listen to him. They left, he, he left them for the people who would accept him. And so this morning, I don't know what Jesus you have in your head. And if I was to find out that your Jesus actually doesn't look a lot like my Jesus, then logic would say that both of us cannot be right. And the likelihood is, if we're honest, is that none of us is absolutely right. We all need to have our Jesus adjusted. And so this morning, I'm going to invite you to do two things. I'm going to invite you to revisit your assumptions by reading the Bible and to recommit to worshipping the real Jesus, whoever he is. Friends, you cannot build a theology on a single verse. But we do that. We read our daily breads, which has a little verse or a phrase, and then you know the rest of the page is all someone's nice thoughts about that, uh, that, that, that verse or that phrase, and then we walk away saying, 
I know Jesus. I'm ready to go into the day. Now, I'm not saying that you should stop that necessarily, but if that's all that you do, then I invite you to read chapters of the Bible, to read whole, whole books of the Bible. This uh, pastor, Travis Agnew, says this, that uh, 40 out of the 66 books, that's 61% of the books, can each be read in less than an hour. In fact, some of the books will take the average reader two minutes to read. And then he says this, 61 of the books, 92% of the books could be read in one day of the average Americans and probably Canadians' average television consumption, which is three hours. 92% of the books in the Bible could be read all the way through in three hours or less. So he says as well, don't use time as an excuse to avoid the Bible if you've ever binge-watched a TV show on Netflix. All right? So we need to revisit our assumptions by reading the Bible, and then we need to recommit to worshiping the true Jesus. Eric Sandras says this. He says, we spend a lot of energy in churches promoting our opinions, and soon our opinions become our creed. Our creed becomes our dogma, and then we find ourselves walking around with a big pair of pruning shears looking for people who don't fit our expectations. We need to adjust our faulty thinking, our incorrect beliefs, by revisiting our assumptions and choosing to worship Jesus as, as revealed in the Bible. And so my question to you this morning is, do you think you might be able to do that? You know, do you think that you might be able to try that? Because if you do this, then your faith will be stronger because it's founded on the eternal word of the Lord and your joy will be deeper and your mind will be clearer and your worship will be more profound and you will be able to persevere through suffering. You will have a peace that is uh, unshakable as you submit to the true Jesus of the Bible rather than this hodgepodge Jesus of your imagination or your unexamined folk religion. And the best news of all is that Jesus will not walk away from you. He, he, because he will see that you are a willing soul. And instead, he will lead you and he will guide you and he will even draw others to faith through you. He will make you into a light for the nations.